Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown, and I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're excited to have a freshman lawmaker from the Bay Area. She came to the U.S. as a toddler and was a labor leader in the East Bay for years before her election to the state assembly last year. That's right. We're excited to welcome Democratic and Progressive Assemblywoman Liz Ortega in just a minute. But first, Guy, big sort of news, uh, Sacramento. State budget. It feels a little... Can I just date myself here as somebody who used to cover these like horrible two thirds majority all summer long Real negotiating sessions? Kind of. People lost out <laughs> on pay. I got overtime. Um, <laughs> it's it feels so anticlimactic right now. Yeah, I mean, basically, the the date June fifteenth, the legislature they have to pass a budget to keep getting paid to meet their constitutional requirements. But there's still a lot of provisions in here that have to be negotiated with Governor Newsom. And as we've seen in the last couple of years, will be over the course of the right. summer. So this- and maybe even into the fall, in some, to some extent, because of this issue with tax receipts being delayed because of the storm, you know, to October. I do think this year there's a, a good reason in some way to wait until later in the summer to deal with some stuff. But transit is one thing we've been following here very closely at KQED. Uh, the governor wanted to essentially cut transit transit funding, even though these agencies have been warning about a fiscal cliff with declining ridership. How do lawmakers try to thread that needle? It seems like where the Senate and Assembly at least have landed is to first reject the $2 billion in cuts that Newsom was proposing, and then also go beyond that and put uh, more than a billion dollars more from the cap and trade uh, fund towards, you know, agencies like we've talked about Muni, BART, you go check out our episode with Annie Fryman and really unpack say, yeah. kind of the, the challenges facing these agencies. And I would argue, look, cap and trade, we've seen that kind of edge into somewhat of a sludge fund, uh, you know, slush, slush fund. fund over the past couple of years. Sludge, slush, sludge, I like sludge, yeah. actually. <laughs> it's, what is it, greenhouse gas reduction fund, but we've seen it like, you know, busing clean drinking water to around the state. I would say transit money is in line with those goals. And what I've heard from transit advocates is the money, a lot of it coming from cap and trade was going to be used to buy electric buses. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense to spend money buying zero emission buses if you don't have people to actually operate them. Right. Going or forward. transit agencies. Yeah. yeah. And I think, too, I mean, again, referring back to that episode we did recently with Annie Fryman, I think it is important because she really drew this line, too, between the way we're building housing and the importance of sort of shoring up transit. I think that's that's big. I mean, we do know, though, that there are some big outstanding uh, questions. Um, CEQA, this proposal by the governor to sort of reform environmental, um, God, how do you even, environmental 
planning laws. Yeah, so. and strictly in this case for infrastructure. So for, you know, big clean energy projects, details, that still has to be worked out. There's you a lot know, of on- shade being thrown by the legislature on this very last minute you know, overhaul of really a landmark law. Yeah, that some would say should have been dealt with through, you know, the policy committees uh, months before now. Four years now. ago. Yeah. Um, since we've been talking about this, since I've been a reporter in California. Um, and then I know for Democrats, especially uh, progressive Democrats, child care providers, raising those rates is a really important sticking point. Yeah. So those, again, are going to be things that the, you know, legislative leaders are going to have to negotiate with the administration in the weeks to come. And we'll be, you know, following all that. Can we talk about Newsom on Hannity? Please, let Okay. I mean, there was so much hype going into this interview on Monday. Your old pal, Anthony York, I think he called it the governor going into the lion's den. Except for it was at the governor's <laughs> mansion. So I think Hannity maybe came into the lion's den, if that's... Yeah, it was. I mean, and it was incredibly combative. Um, I got the okay, impression... Wait, I'm going to push back on that. I felt like it they, was very... They seemed to enjoy it, but they were, it, they were going back and forth. I almost got the impression I was joking at home, like, were his aides putting Vaseline on his face and like ice water in his shorts and sending him out yeah. after every commercial break. Like but he it came out firing. nasty at all. No. And it was actually, and you said this first and so not to steal your thunder, but like it's the best I've seen Newsom in a while. I mean, he was on point. I feel like they might have given him some like facial training so that he didn't like react because just the way he was, I mean, in a, you know, the way he was interacting with Hannity again, like, yeah, it was tense and it was tough and nobody pulled any punches, but it was not nasty at all. It, it was not what you would, I think, expect coming into a Fox News interview of someone like Newsom, who's been this foil for them and vice versa. Yeah. And it wasn't. Look, it's what Newsom, I think, really ultimately seems to enjoy. It was not presidential. He spent half the interview referring to red states as your states, your people. But it was really pugilistic. And I think that's ultimately kind of where his place in the party today is right now. He wasn't seeking to put forward some kind of unifying vision. But, you know, he he really that's enjoys not, yeah, that's he enjoys having right these these back and forths. And certainly on there was issues, most notably, I thought his his really full throated defense of California's progressive tax system, which for every, you know, placard and card Hannity had Newsom had a fact at his hand as well. And I think really came very prepared for it. Yeah. I mean, and to give Newsom credit as somebody that we often sort of grumble about in our line of work and people who follow him closely, that sometimes he's too sort of laden with facts and data and statistics. I mean, he did come prepared and I think he did make the case and I think, you know, did push back on some of these narratives, uh, not all of them. Um, I know, you know, reparations at the end was kind of an interesting that was punt in a way. Because, look, there wasn't a lot of news made in this interview. There was kind of regurgitating a lot of the, the arguments that we've heard between Florida and California. But this reparations question, this is something that's going to come up soon. The task force has been working for two years, delving into the history of you know state harms against black Californians, looking at possible remunerations. They're going to come out with a report in the next couple of weeks. And so Newsom was asked about this. And he really threw a lot of cold water on the idea of cash payments. He's a, he'd already put out a statement that said something to the effect of, you know, reparations are more than a paycheck. And then he said about his comment, quote, this implies a deeper rationalization of what is achievable, what is reasonable and what is right. To me, I see that as he's laying the groundwork for basically two years after this was a hugely celebrated event, starting the task force, laying the groundwork for saying, OK, we may not have much come out of this. What I'll be interested to see, even if they can't, if there's not much done on the financial side of this, there's a lot of recommendations that are going to come from this task oh, yeah. force that don't have anything to do with, you know, a check. 
how much does Newsom pursue those? Or, right, maybe don't have to do the check. Maybe some of them are monetary. We talk about more support for, you know, housing assistance so people can actually buy homes who, you know, have not had the generational wealth that other folks in America have had. You talk about better access to higher education. I mean, there are a lot of ways to go. I mean, however, and I agree with you, Newsom for months has been kind of slow walking this, like, I'm not sure I'm here yet on even you know, financial reparations. On the other hand, like you noted that this a lot of this interview was not him trying to appeal to red states. I do think that some of this is also just political positioning in terms of like he doesn't want to be the one being the champion for this. Who knows what the end result is, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think if he is very opposed to cash payments, the budget situation will be a kind of convenient out. out. On the other hand, we've often seen him take a position and be willing to be moved left by the legislature and you know other groups. So I do think TBD. Like we'll see. Newsom's yeah. playing the long game here, and um, and just a quick programming shout out on that. Our you know KQED for our listeners of yes. KQED is going to have. Full coverage, you know, throughout the day, Saturday, heading into Juneteenth weekend, looking at the reparations proposals and kind of just coverage throughout the day. So if you're interested, check that out kind of all day Saturday. Yeah, we've got a big team working on that. Okay, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Democratic Assemblywoman Liz Ortega of San Leandro. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with Guy Marzarati. We're thrilled to have with us Liz Ortega. She is a progressive Democrat representing San Leandro in the Bay Area. She came from labor and just cast her first state budget vote. Assemblywoman Ortega, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here growing up in the Bay Area. For me, it's, you know, like, oh, my God, I made it. <laughs> I'm on KQED. I'm on KQED, yes. Well, we appreciate you coming in. And as I mentioned, you literally came straight here from taking that budget vote in Sacramento. How do you feel? Um, anything you are still kind of worried about looking ahead? At, you know, we talked about that this process isn't really over yet. Yeah, I feel great. Um, You know, it's my first budget process that I've gone through in my first five months as a legislator. You know, as having been someone on the outside who's looked in, who's really pushed uh, for more accountability, more transparency, and making sure that we protect our essential services, uh, I really walked into this doing exactly that. Um, and hoping for exactly that. And I think we did achieve that. I feel good about where we are despite our, you know, deficit. I think, you know, we voted on keeping, um, you know, making sure we prioritize things like childcare. 
um, making sure that the child care providers get a COLA increase that they haven't received in years, Um, making sure that we protect our um, infrastructure, making sure that we protect our homelessness and housing issues. Um, And so those things I feel really good about. You talked about transit, you know, making sure that we have a public transportation system that is running was a priority of mine. Um, stepping into this, hearing from our transportation um, districts and, you know, hearing from the public and understanding that while ridership is not up and, you know, hasn't recovered from the pandemic, I knew that the bottom line was, do we want a public transportation system moving forward or not? Mm, yeah, I, I mean, mean, short thinking is what's gotten us in this mess often. And you have your district is San Leandro, Hayward, Union City. So you have a few BART stations in your district. What do you make of this agreement that ultimately came out through the legislature? And then kind of where do these agencies go from here as it relates to their relationship with the state and how much aid you're going to have to provide going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge deal. It's something that we have not done before. I think I want to give a lot of credit to our assembly member, budget chair, Phil Ting, who really worked hard on this deal and making sure that, again, we saved our public transportation system. Yes, I have many BART stations, but it's not just BART. We also have our AC transit system. We have our ferry system. It's a whole system, you know, would be impacted by this. And I have a lot of working families that just need to get to work. And, you know, during the pandemic, when I was a labor leader, it wasn't about, you know, can I get on a bus or not? They had to. Yeah. Um, I represented essential workers. Mm-hmm. And these are commuters that never had a choice about getting back on the on the freeway. Um, these are workers that worked, you know, odd hours, uh, people with disabilities that need this system. Um, that's one. That's the practical. And then long term, you know, our climate goals. Right. Do we want more people on the road or do we want to achieve our climate goals that we set forward? And that means keeping our public transportation alive and funded and working. Right. Well, I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about your early life, how you got to this point. Um, I know your mom brought you and your brother from Mexico when you were, I think, like three years old. I think I read that she didn't even tell your dad that she was undertaking this journey. He was already here. What do you remember about it, if anything? Um, and what did? You, how did your parents talk about it when you were growing up? The only thing I remember are lights. I remember the Bay Bridge lights. Mm. Um that's my only and early memory of when I got here. Uh, yes, that is absolutely right. So like many other immigrant families, my dad came to the United States first. He came to Oakland and he got here and, you know, he told my mom, I'm going to save some money, get situated, and then I'll, I'll send for you to come and we'll be reunited Um, But my mom, um, you know, was back in Mexico and she was when he left, she was actually still pregnant with my little brother. And so, you know, when he was about six months old and I was about three years old, she decided that she was tired of waiting and somehow managed to get the resources to cross the border illegally by herself with a toddler and a baby. And put moms her are life. amazing. Yeah, she is. She is. <laughs> and, you know, most of the time I can't even get through this story without crying. So I'm trying to do that. But, you know, when things get rough, that's what I think about. I think about if she could do that, I can do anything that's necessary to make sure that other mothers don't have to go through that. Mm. Um, and that's what kind of drives me every day. And so you were the oldest of your siblings. What was kind of your role in the family growing up uh, in the East Bay? It's 
you know, I talk about, you know, when I, um, by the time I started kindergarten, I was very fluent in English and Spanish. And so very early on, um, my parents recognized this gift that I had of being able to translate things pretty quickly and effectively. And so I became not just a family translator, but the community translator. And so throughout my childhood, I, you know, would go to job interviews, to doctor's appointments. I remember being nine years old and getting in line at the ICE office in San Francisco at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. when we were getting our uh, residency and um, having to not just fill out documents for our family, but other families. My parents would basically say, look, you're going to do this for us, and then you're going to do it for every other family that doesn't have a Liz. Mm. And as a nine-year-old, I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing. (laughs) And they would say, figure it out. Wow. So I know another kind of, I mean, obviously that would have laid a huge impression on a young kid, and I think probably kind of laid you on a path for leadership. Um, The other thing we've read about is that your parents actually both got good union jobs. Um, Talk about what they did and like, what did you see that, you know, ability to have the protection of a labor union? What did that do for your immigrant family? Um, Yeah, for me, it showed me what a union difference makes, what it means to have good wages, what it means to have health care, and what it means to have a voice on the job. Prior to them being, you know, in union jobs, my dad was a dishwasher and my mom was a housekeeper. And they had to deal with, all, you know, discrimination, um, sexual harassment. Um, you know, my dad talks about, you know, working crazy hours and never getting paid overtime. Um, I had family members that worked construction jobs, and they would always be threatened with deportation if they ever spoke about their working conditions. So when my dad got his first union job as a janitor, that was the first thing that I knew was that he now had good wages, good benefits, and could have a voice to make a difference. If something did not feel right, he knew that his union had his back. So we want to talk about your political voice when that started to come about. I think you were in high school in like the mid-90s-ish. It was Prop 187 debate was going on. Was that kind of a driver or a light bulb moment for you? Definitely. Yes. Prop 187 was definitely a light bulb. You know, for me, in terms of my whole life, I was translating and being that voice for my family and seeing the difference in terms of income inequality um, and discrimination and racism. And to have it in my classroom um, was very eye-opening and also very um, empowering because for the first time, I also realized that I could use my power of voicing my opinions in a way that could actually make a difference by telling my story and by being able to say, no, this is not okay. It is not okay for my public institution, my classroom teachers, to say that I do not belong here, to say that my family does not belong here, and to say that they're criminals and rapists and all these other outrageous things that were being said at the time. Um was very empowering, which led me to be one of those kids who was out there, you know, organizing walkouts and, you know, speaking at rallies at downtown Oakland City Hall. Yeah, we got to do a count of how many lawmakers now were activated by 187. And, you know, we've really seen a sea change in California. I want to ask after um, 
you became an adult or in your early adulthood, you ended up working for SEIU. I'm curious, like, how you came to that job. What was happening in your life? Did you see yourself going in to labor? No, I actually was working as a community organizer. I was a single mom. At that point, I was eight, 21 years old, actually. I was a 21-year-old single mom with two little boys oh, wow. and was doing community organizing. And I, I met a longtime friend of mine who was at SEIU, and she called me, and she, she till this day, is my, one of my mentors and one of my biggest cheerleaders, and called and said, Liz, you're doing all this great work. Why don't you come work for SEIU and be a receptionist? And we need someone who speaks Spanish. And at first I said, no, I like what I'm doing. I like being in the community. <laughs> and essentially I, I ended up going to work for SEIU Local 250 at the time and was a receptionist for about six months and then quickly became an organizer, um, started organizing workers across the state, or learned about the political programs that they had, um, started an immigration um, and citizenship program. Um, where we had a lot of members who were immigrants and permanent residents but didn't have citizenship. And so started a program um, nationally and, you know, ended up there for almost 10 years. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Guy Marzarati here with Marisa Lagos, and our guest today is Assemblywoman Liz Ortega of the East Bay. We're talking about your work uh, in organized labor, which eventually led to a job with AFSCME lobbying at the state capitol. What was that experience like? Kind of what did you learn about how things got dealt with in Sacramento as opposed to the local work that you had been doing? It, that was, you talk about the budget process. <laughs> that was the first time I really got to see it up close and personal. I also got to see the legislative part of uh, the work that I had been doing and how a bill becomes a law in practical <laughs> in a practical sense. And the biggest lesson I took from that was that um, working families are not always prioritized in the middle of the night. Mm. When negotiations are being made, when important discussions are being talked about, when most of us are asleep, that's when the decisions are being made. And if there's someone not in that room in the middle of the night voicing for those people, then they don't get prioritized. And... That was my biggest lesson and why I worked so hard day in and day out to make sure that the workers that I represented as a lobbyist were prioritized, were seen in the middle of the night, and they actually got to see it when they went to work every day and felt it. Well, now you're on the other side in the Capitol. Um, And as we mentioned, this is your first year in office. I'm wondering with that labor background, I mean, often there's, you know, debates in the Capitol where labor unions can be on different sides of an issue, right? Like, have you had any issues, bills, policies where you've had to maybe break with organized labor or you're thinking about it slightly differently just because, you know, your job now is not just to protect those specific workers. It's you know, the state of California, your constituents um, and those workers. No, because, uh, you know, as a head of the Labor Council, where I I was the first Latina elected to be executive director of Alameda Labor Council. There I represented 135,000 workers, 135 different unions. 
They didn't always agree. <laughs> they didn't always have the same issues. My job was to figure out, okay, what is it that you do agree on and how do we get to those goals and bringing people together with different views and achieving them. And so I don't see me being on the inside now doesn't narrow that point of view. It actually expands it, right? I get to, like you said, it's not just labor. It's... Um, it's a much bigger world, but at the core of what I do every single day and how I think about things is what will make a mother, a daughter, a working family's lives better. And that's how I operate. Well, one of the issues that labor is deeply invested in the outcome of is this idea of reforming CEQA, California's environmental laws. The governor has proposed some revamps to that when it comes to clean energy projects, infrastructure. What's kind of big picture, like your thoughts on this and how do you approach the issue? CEQA is a very important piece of law that was put in place to protect our climate, our environment. It's one of the, you know, it's a law that makes California a leader when it comes to climate and climate change. Um, but at the same time, I've seen, I've seen it be abused. And I've seen it, you know, not work the way it's supposed to work. And so in terms of what the governor has been asking for in the budget, I was happy to vote for it because... We need to move a little faster when it comes to some of these critical things that need to happen um, to achieve these climate goals. And waiting, you know, nine, 10 years on a lawsuit because of CEQA is not the way to get things done. Mm. And, you know, it's not a new, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, oh, you know, we shouldn't do this. And the, it's not a new thing. Um, this body has actually done uh, similar things when it comes to, you know, um, big infrastructure projects like sports arenas. Yeah. <laughs> Not something that I, nef def I, I don't know that I would have supported that. Right. But when it comes to things that are in the budget that we need to get done yesterday... You know, and we're not doing away with CEQA completely. We're just figuring out a way to make it so that it's impactful but effective and gets things done. One area that the CEQA debate is not touching right now is housing. But we have seen a lot of housing bills move in the last few years that are really different. Um, you know, this idea of kind of usurping local control when localities have been blocking or people who live there have been blocking through CEQA and other means, uh, housing development. And we've seen a real schism between some of the building trades and the carpenters union. Um, I'm going to oversimplify this for our audience, but essentially the carpenters have argued for kind of minimum wages being put into bills that are, you know, seen as sort of working, um, you know, level wages. And the building trades have pushed way more for essentially language that almost it, you can't force anybody to hire union labor, but results in union labor being the ones who can build these big projects. How do you approach something like that? How are you thinking about that? Because, again, like this is two labor unions who both say that they are trying to lift up working people. Bringing them together and having that dialogue, something I've continued to do when I was at the head of the Labor Council. You know, we didn't always agree. I don't know if they're talking right now. They seem to just be <laughs> well, fighting. <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> my job is to get them to talk. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, they do both want the same thing, which is built and making sure we have affordable housing, but at the same time, making sure we have good union jobs. And, you know, that for me, I want to make sure that they're skilled and trained so that we don't have 
workers who don't have what they need to be able to build these massive projects. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've seen the difference it makes when you have, um, you know, when you have folks who have what they need to be able to build these massive projects as opposed to not. And it's it's a big deal. And so figuring out a way to bring them together and you know again I'm oversimplifying because it's a huge issue yeah I know we both have to because it would take us an hour I we only have about a minute I'm curious though like it strikes me that these are two different kind of strategies we've seen unions use like should labor kind of lift all boats um SEIU model you know a $15 minimum wage um you know changing policies even in shops that aren't unionized or it should it be about ensuring the growth of unions or that union members only get jobs like how do you it's both. Okay. I'm never going to say it's one or the other. It always has, has to be both. And with that comes organizing, organizing, organizing. You know, there's no piece of legislation that I can ever pass that's going to be stronger than workers who organize and have a union contract. Hmm. All right. Well, we got about 30 seconds uh, left here. I know you have four kids, the oldest in their mid, late 20s. What's it been like? He's 26. 26. 26. Okay. okay. What's it been like for them to kind of be along for this full yeah. ride of yours, right? Like they've seen you go from receptionist to one of 120 state legislators. Now you're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> we try. Yes. Well, you know, I'll start with my youngest. My 16-year-old is very proud. She's a little girl, you know, my youngest girl, and she's obviously very proud, um, but also misses me a lot. It's mm-hmm. been a hardship for her not to have me home as much as I have been. Um, but she's very proud to have see her mom and be able to make a difference for not just her, but future generations of young girls. My oldest... You know, he spoke at one of my campaign events, and and I didn't know what he was going to (laughs) say, and unprompted, and he talked about how I used to pull him out of school to go GOTV, get out the vote when he was a little kid. That's love. And so to be able to vote for his mom was the biggest highlight of his life. That is lovely. We're going to leave it there. Assemblywoman Liz Ortega, thanks for coming in. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. For more politics coverage, check out our Political Breakdown newsletter at kqed.org slash newsletters. That's right. And if you're already uh, reading the newsletter, make sure you take our reader survey. Our engineer today is Christopher Beal. I'm Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.